You're listening to And hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have an author interview with Rita Chang Epic, the author of Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea, a historical fiction um, novel about the infamous pirate queen, Shek Young, a.k.a. Um, Zhang Yixiao, as she's known in, I guess, Mandarin. Um, I want to say this is our second at least featured book on our podcast about this particular pirate queen, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, C.B. Lee uh, wrote a book called uh, Clash of Steel, and we've had her on the show before, but she didn't really have uh, Shek Young as the main character because it was about, like, two young girls, and Shek Young was, um, like, a mother figure, I think, in 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 the background of the story. So quite different. Um, and I I know that because... It's about a Chinese pirate queen. A lot of people might think this is like a swashbuckling, like adventure story with like cool, like it's like a cool superhero origin story. It is not yeah. that book. It's not a one piece. Uh, <laughs> it's not a one piece. It's a it's a literary novel with a lot of introspection and you know political drama. Uh, so it it was a little bit different from what I expected the book to be, and I was pleasantly surprised and. You know, it's rare when we see uh, a female protagonist be allowed to be a bad person. <laughs> so so that was really nice to read as well. We had a great chat with Rita um, talking about how she came to writing, um, her inspirations for the book, and also getting into some pretty uh, specific cultural things on like Chinese maritime culture as well. Um, so please enjoy our chat with Rita Chang Epic. And we're here with Rita Cheng Epic, the author of Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. Welcome to the show, Rita. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, um, very excited. We always love to start our author chats by learning more about, you know, the people that write these books. So um, tell us about your journey to becoming a published novelist. Yeah, so I will admit that I came to writing in a somewhat roundabout way. Uh, I, I studied um I did study creative writing in college, but at the time, you know, this was in the early 2000s, um, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of Asian American authors who were very prominent in the, in the literary scene. You know, you had Amy Tan, you obviously had Maxine Hong Kingston from, you know, years before that. But um, the, the, the overall message that I got around the time was that, you know, there, there really wasn't room for somebody like me who wanted to tell the kinds of stories that I did um, as, a, uh, um, as an Asian American woman. And so um, I, I, uh, after college, I actually went on to do a PhD in clinical psychology, um, you know, to pay the bills and also because I was interested in the topic. And I worked as a psychologist and uh, uh, adjunct uh, psychology professor for many years before I finally decided to go back to school to get my uh, MFA in, in fiction. And thankfully, I mean, you know, things are still by no means perfect, but they are changing in my in my opinion. And so um, I I did my MFA at NYU and then I started working on this novel Um and uh, yeah, I, I, I've been very fortunate in that I have uh, found some really kind vocal supporters for my writing along the way. So um, I, I, in many ways, I do owe this to, to the people who've uh, helped me these past few years. And I know that prior to writing this novel, um, you specialized in short stories. Uh, they've been featured on uh, the Best American Short Stories 2021 and publications like The Rumpus. Um, and I feel like with a lot of um, writing programs, they start with short stories because you can actually complete them on time. Um, how was it 
what was your experience like expanding to full novel writing? And also, uh, was Deep as the Sky Red as the Sea your first attempt at writing a novel? Or did you have a novel in your drawer? Yeah, all great questions. So I, for me, expanding to uh, a longer format was honestly kind of terrifying because as you said, you know, I had, and I want to say I still love the short story form. I think there's something that short stories can do that novels just can't. And so it's a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like photography and oil painting. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, they're just different art forms and you can't really say that one art form is somehow superior to the other. But, um, but expanding to uh, a long form was really scary because I think you, there, there are going to be many points along the way where you're going to think like, is this boring? Like, where does this go from here? You know, like, am I putting in too much description? Whereas with a short story, there's a kind of circumscribed, you know, like you've got 20, you know, you've got about 20 pages to work with. And so whatever story you're trying to tell, kind of needs to happen within those 20 pages. Um, So uh, in sort of an answer to your second question, I did write a novel prior to this one that got published and it will never see the light of day for I think everyone's sake, it should never see the light of day. Um, But it did teach me, I think, some less good lessons about how to approach Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. And I think the primary lesson that it taught me was that um, I needed to, if I, if I was starting to feel bored with my own novel, then other people were definitely going to feel bored reading my novel. And so um, I think it taught me some interesting things about pacing and about, um, you know, about just kind of what, what do you need to do to make, to shake up a plot or to uh, advance characterization in a way that keeps readers engaged. I'm curious as to like in um, in like your MFA program, like, did you write stories about like your heritage, about like your Asian background? Because I feel like it depends on uh, when you went for your program, because a lot of like younger Asian American writers, they have no qualms. They're like, yeah, I just wrote about my experience. Um, I didn't really have to think about it. Whereas like older writers, um, they were kind of discouraged because most of the people in the room, you know, they don't have the same experience as us. They don't look like us. So um, what was your experience like? Yeah, I mean, I, so I'm, I write a sort of a, I, I write some stories that are very much rooted in my cultural background. And then I write some stories that are about like cyborgs, you know, like, so it kind of really depends on what um, strikes my fancy at a given moment. But you know, it's it's funny because I feel like when I went to um, school, it, things sometimes comments tended to fall into two kinds of categories. Like if there were, if most people were lovely, I should kind of give that. You know, I, I should specify most people were absolutely lovely and supportive. But yeah, there are definitely people who um, uh, maybe were less uh, less generous with their feedback, and um, they tended to fall into two categories. There are the people who are like. I, well, I basically, I don't understand this culture. I don't understand what you're talking about. Like, you know, like I remember there was one story I wrote in which um, about a mother and a Chinese American mother and daughter fighting. And um, a, a classmate said like, well, I didn't empathize with either of these characters. I found like, you know, I found neither of them sympathetic. And so like, I didn't care about the story. And it was interesting because afterward, um, uh, several Asian American uh classmates came up to me and were like, actually, I knew exactly what you were talking about. Like, this isn't because you failed to make the story sympathetic. It's because that particular particular reader was not invested in sympathizing with your characters, if that makes any sense. Um, but then on the other hand, there were also these comments where it was like, well, why are you writing about cyborgs? You should be writing about your culture, right? Like if you do, you if you aren't writing about Asian things, then what's the purpose of you in the publishing industry? I mean, they didn't say it like that, but that was kind of the 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 feeling that I walked away with. So I think I, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's been a few years, so I don't know how MFA programs have changed in the meantime. But um, but I do think that that I was kind of coming up against both back when I was in the program. 
Yeah, it definitely seems like sometimes it's it's similar when I speak with like Asian American creators from other mediums too. It's tough to know, like in in screenwriting or in in music. Um, it's tough to know sometimes if you're there to check a box or if you're there for your art. And I think that's, I don't know if the country is there yet because we're like, let's say like capitalism wants to exploit our cultures and our experiences for, for, for commercial gain. And sometimes, sometimes they're very like, they're kind of transparent about that, right? Oh yeah. And no, sometimes they don't even try to hide it. Like um, the, uh, I, I don't know if you, you two are familiar with, uh, so the author Nicole Chung wrote this piece. Yes. Okay. So I see both of you <laughs> nodding. Um, and I thought, I mean, so she stated it, I think far better than, than I can, which is that there's a way in which um, pe- people sometimes only want to hear from us when they feel like we're there to educate them about something, right? Like that it's like, or, or like, oh, um, we want to hear about your pain, you know, tell us about your horrible pain so that we can, yeah. we can kind of um, uh, indulge in a little bit of trauma porn, you know, I mean, like that phrase has been floating around recently. And so, and I think as a writer, if you approach your writing, trying to either match these expectations or deliberately trying to flout these expectations, I think you're going to have a very hard time writing because then like you're, you're going to be like, there's no way you can create freely if you're kind of like navigating every step of the way, trying to avoid doing certain things or trying to meet, match certain things. And so, yeah, I think Asian American, just general like creatives of color tend to be put in these impossible situations that um, we we all have to kind of decide what to do about in our own ways. Yeah, it's kind of like a damn if you do and damn if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess before we move on to your book, I did want to, I'm curious about, um, because we've talked to a lot of authors on this podcast, like we were mentioned, some are young and they're, they grew up in a world where you know, they had people to model after to say, OK, I can't become a novelist. I want to become a writer. And then there's people that follow more of the path you took, which is a roundabout way to get into writing, um, you know, kind of hedging at first because the path wasn't as clear. And then later on deciding, OK, I'm, I want to become a, a creative writer, you know, for the generation of us who are in that same boat, like maybe we want to write at some point, but we decided, no, we're going to be a lawyer first. Or we're going to be a engineer first. Or um, what was, what drove you? Like, what was, do you remember what was the moment where you decided I'm going to go back and like pursue this thing I really want to do? I think it was less that I am. I mean, I think it depends on how you define pursue. I, I kept writing after college. It just was not, I just never thought that I would be able to get published. And I, I, I never, uh, there wasn't this assumption that I think um, people who grew up in different circumstances have, where it's like, oh, there's going to be a market for my work. So I just need to keep writing this book until it's done, you know, um, it, until it's ready to go out there. Um, but I, I think there was a point when I hit my early to mid 30s, when I realized that um, I had spent the past, you know, 12 years of my life um, doing the thing that I felt like I should be doing as opposed to the thing that I really wanted to do. I mean, this, you know, this isn't like, I'm sure this is a story you've heard before. And I think something about that, that realization that, you know, we, we don't know how much time any of us really has left. Um, I should also back up a little bit and say that right around the time my mother um, suffered a, a health uh, scare, like it was a pretty big health scare. And so I think all of those kind of made me very suddenly aware of my own mortality. And, um, and I said, okay, well, I, and, and I, I should be clear, I didn't quit my job, right? Like it's, it's, it, I think it's a very, uh, you know, like, I think it's a very common story to be like, okay, I'm going to work at this job while pursuing my art. So I continue working as a psychologist and I continue teaching um, at, uh, at the university where I was teaching um, while uh, doing all this writing. So um, it was, it's only until very, very recently that um, because the 
demands of the book and because the demands of um, everything that's uh, that's been happening and coming up, um, I was like, okay, I'm going to put my license temporarily on hold so that I can focus on this. But yeah, no, I I was I was teaching and working all the way up until <laughs> af- un- until after my book sold. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of authors that we've talked to who, you know, still have their day jobs as lawyers, as engineers, as financial advisors. And, you know, some of them actually really love their jobs. They love both of their jobs and, you know, like power to them. I have no idea how they find the time to <laughs> to uh, meet their deadlines. But uh, yeah, um, but I want to move into uh, your uh, your debut novel. So it is focused on Shek Young, or more popularly known as Ching Yi Shao. And uh, she has been portrayed in pop culture quite a bit, uh, including most recently Doctor Who and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and of course, uh, some Chinese dramas in the past. Um, so like, what was your first introduction to Shek Young? And how have like those pop culture depictions influence your own portrayal of her? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, so I've been aware of Sekyung as a character for like many years now. Like, I I think I heard about her when I was like a kid. So like the, you know, like, and I didn't know details about her life. But, you know, again, there are stories that are floating around about her. Uh, I should say I, um, I was born and raised in Taiwan. And so like... Um, uh, maritime culture, obviously, because Taiwan is an island. It's still like a very active part of uh, the life there. But um, but I think you know. I mean, I'm just going to say it. Like, I don't. I, I didn't. I didn't actually watch the Doctor Who um, depiction of Sekyung, but I'm going to guess it had something to do with aliens, based on just what Doctor Who is about. Um, but like, I remember watching that Pirates of Caribbean, the Caribbean. Um, I think it was like the second or third movie or something like that. And just feeling agog at how racist that depiction <laughs> of, um, you know, I like, I think in the movie they called her Madam, Madam Ching or something like that. And um, it was, you know, this bit role with no, no, you know, like she didn't really have any substantial dialogue. She didn't have any character development. She, like she wasn't a character. She was a trope. Um, and, um, and, you know, like, you know, I was like 20, like I was like, oh, it's a fun pirate movie. Like, I, you know, I was, I'm ob- nobody writes a novel about pirates without being kind of like geekily obsessed with pirates in the first place, you know? And so I was into those movies. And then I, I remember watching that scene and just feeling really let down. Like, and my 20, little 21 year old, I don't know how old I was at the time, self couldn't really articulate what it was about that particular depiction that rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so when I was approaching the character in this um, in this particular uh, novel, I was trying to think about two things. I, I, one thing is I wanted to write her from the perspective of uh, a fellow a fellow Asian or well, I'm Asian diaspora but and the other is I wanted to write her from the perspective of a fellow uh, woman. Because um, the thing is that, yes, there have also been depictions of her in uh, East Asian uh, media, but I'm going to go ahead and wager that many of those depictions were created by men. And so I, I think I, I was really trying to approach her from the perspective of a fellow Asian woman who, um, you know, certainly my, my life has been very, very different from hers. You know, we lived, she lived during a very different time and in a, in a different part of the world. But um, I was trying to, uh, I think, tell her story with a little bit more nuance and dignity than how I feel like her story had been told, at least in Western media up to this point. Uh, for our listeners who are kind of unfamiliar with history, uh, can you give context to like what an average woman's life was like uh during this time in like the 1800s in uh southeast asia specifically uh canton i mean you know like back then if you you know were 
uh, if you were a woman, then generally speaking, you had very little control over the direction of your life, right? Like if you were a peasant, then you had to work, right? So uh, back then, uh, both uh, all genders participated in the workplace, um, but uh, but it was usually kind of really backbreaking, uh, not very remunerative uh, kind of labor. And uh, especially in the case of um, uh, fisher folk, which she was, she was born into the family of um, a family of fishermen, um, you were constantly at risk of being um, kidnapped by pirates. Like this was a huge problem at the time because um, uh, that region of the country was going through a mass, were going through waves and waves of famine at the time. And so there were all of these like desperate, hungry people who joined pirate fleets in order to in order to um, get more money and get more food. So if you were if you were a, uh, if you were in fishing, then there was a very very like it, your chances the chances of you getting abducted by pirates was not low. Let's just put it like that. And um, for women in particular, uh, so usually what they did was they would try to ransom you first, right? So if you um, get abducted by pirates, they'll say, okay, we'll, we'll try to see if we can redeem you for money, essentially. But if you're a peasant, you don't have money. Like your family, your village does not have money to give to these pirates. And then so usually one of two things happen. Um, if you were a man, they usually conscripted you into the pirate fleet. And that's how the numbers of a lot of these pirates, pirate fleets grew. You know, so it's like if they um, abduct everybody on a ship all of the the male members of the ship become pirates now. Um, So they get press ganged. And um, in the case of um, women, very often, if your families and your communities couldn't pay your ransom, and again, often they couldn't, you got sold to into um, various, you know, um, to to various places. Sometimes you uh, got sold into... Uh, uh, domestic servitude, and in the case of uh, the char- main character Sek Young, um, some historical records indicate that she was sold to these things called "quote unquote" flower boats, which was um, their very kind of like euphemistic name back then for brothel. Um, so um, I don't know. So I, I, I hope that gives listeners some um, context of what it was like to be a woman back then. Yeah, I I mean, definitely. And I'm sure you went into excruciating research. Uh, I'm just curious, like, as to uh, what your research process was like. Uh, Were there sources readily available in English or was it like mostly you had to dive into um, like Chinese sources and translate it? Yeah, there weren't a lot of... um there just weren't a lot of written records about her specifically. I mean, there are lots of records about what it was like to, you know, about like sort of Chinese maritime traffic back then and kind of the social political situation, Um, you know, about like what was going on with the European powers and with the Chinese emperor. So like those kind of broader societal things were available and there are many books written about them in the English language that one can easily access. Um, In fact, there was a, a really, uh, and I wish I remember the name of the author. I'm very sorry. I should have uh, looked this up beforehand. But like, you know, people have written entire dissertations on like pirating culture in southern China, you know, during that during that period of time. Um, but in terms of this particular historical figure, a lot of the tales about her are oral, right? So it's like they're kind of stories that like have been passed down, but um, there aren't a lot of... Um, uh, written documents about her. And in a way that made it a little bit easier because it allowed me to construct the fictionalization of her life in a way that didn't feel as fettered by, um, you know, like, it, like if there's like a, you know, well-written like biography of her life somewhere, then like I would feel too beholden to tell the story that way. Um, so instead what I did was I just basically, I pieced together um I, I read a lot of books about the general period and the general uh, um, region at the time. And then um, I took a lot of these sort of like oral stories that were floating around about her, like these little bits and pieces that, you know, were floating around. And um, I kind of smushed them, for lack of a better word, smushed them together to make um, to make a fictionalization. 
Yeah, what I really enjoyed about reading your book was kind of seeing this more, I guess, like you mentioned, nuanced portrayal of of Shikyung and the interiority of, I guess, extrapolating what it would have been like to live under what the culture would have been like back then. And we've read plenty of literature about, you know, the the effects of Confucius patriarchal ideals on like women in that time and like fr- quite frankly how it like even haunts us today and so can you talk to us about like, how you filled in those details for your main character uh, do, do you mean like in terms of her personality or in terms of yeah i guess yeah like can you tell us about how you you know fill in those details like this character uh, because you know in portrayal she's always seen as someone like like stoic or adventurer it's a very like swashbuckly portrayal but her character in your book is much more you know, we get to see more of her internal insecurities and fears, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, she was a pirate. I mean, I, I think because there's something so outsized about the way that people talk about her in modern day society. Do you know what I mean? Like people go like, oh, she was this pirate queen. And and I mean, I'll be honest, right? Like like my marketing team uses that same language when they're when they're pitching the book. So like like this is kind of part of the way that we talk about her commercially. Um, but ultimately, she was a human being who, you know, almost certainly had all of these complexities. And I and one of the things that I um, really wanted to do was like to try to, you know, and obviously, do I know for a fact that these were her complexities? No. You know, like we, you know, like a lot of this is speculation. But I tried my best to kind of approach this. You know, I, I what I would do is I would take the the known facts about her life. And then I would kind of say like, okay, psychologically, how would a person who experiences something like this, how would this affect their future behavior? And then how would their future behavior lead to future um, behavior? So it's a little bit like the analogy that I, um, that I use sometimes for this is it's like history or historical facts form a kind of skeleton, right? It gives like it, it gives you a skeleton to let you know kind of where the, all the major battles were and all what the major events were. Um, but um, the 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 rest of it, you know, like the human relationships, the internal conflicts, all of those kinds of things that they they are what you need to do as a fiction writer to fill in the organs, right? Like you need to add the heart, you need to add the blood, you need to add the sinews and the veins. Those are the things that historical facts very often can't, um, or we just don't have access to those facts because they've been lost to history. And so in a little bit, it was a little bit like, I, I, I felt like I was constructing a kind of Frankenstein's monster where I was like taking these historical you know, these bones, these historical bits, and then kind of like trying to fill the other things in based on my own, um, my own interpretation of human nature and based on my own understanding um, of things like trauma and, um, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, we talked to author C.B. Lee. She wrote Clash of Steel back in 2021, and it's a um, YA book on uh, Shek Young and Ching Yi Shao. And um, in her author's note and in our interview with her, she said that, you know, her own family history helped inform how she was going to write her female characters because, you know, her uh, grandmother actually survived, um, you know, pirates like uh, her family are a boat people. And, you know, it really gave her, I guess, the framework to build the character of uh, her female characters. So did you kind of have a similar experience? Like, did you um, like, what's your family history and how did it inform you in your writing? Yeah. Um, so I, I said I was born and raised in Taiwan. My, my maternal grandparents actually fled to Taiwan from China back in 1949. So they were part of that huge grave of uh, uh, wave. Sorry. That was an interesting Freudian slip. They were part of the huge wave of um, um, uh, refugees that kind of, kind of came during that time. And um, my, my maternal uh, my maternal side of the family, they are big storytellers. Um, I mean, you know, everybody kind of has a slightly different version of like the story, even if it's something that happened to everybody. But um, so I grew up hearing those stories. Um, and I guess I one 
one story that like has always stuck with me um, was the the story that my grandparents told about escaping to. So they were in the southern part of China and they were escaping to the coast to try to um, to try to get to the the boats that would take them to Taiwan, and uh, they they got to the they got to the shore and there were two boats. One was a an old like one masted junk ship. Um, and the other was like this big modern, um, diesel powered boat. And, uh, they, they were like, well, we don't have enough money to get onto this modern powered, you know, diesel powered ship. So the only one we can afford is this, you know, and and when they describe it, they were like, we didn't know if we were going to even make it across the strait to Taiwan because it looked like such a rickety, rickety boat. Um, all right. But, you know, like there, there were people like uh, th- because they were trying to escape from um, uh, 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 Mao's army. They were like, OK, well, there are people behind us. We just got to get get on this thing and kind of hope for the best. So the two ships set sail at around the same time. And somebody was apparently firing artillery at the ships from land. And so my grandparents described watching sh- artillery shells fall like you know to the left uh, left of the ship right of the ship but like just all missing the ship and then they look over and then the the giant boat because it made for an easier target had been hit by one of the artillery shells and was sinking and so the the sort of really ironic thing was that this kind of very unreliable looking ship is actually the thing that saved them because um it because it was so small, maybe that it may, just didn't make for as easy of a target, and so I remember listening to that story as I grew up and just developing a really weird fascination with junk ships in general. Um, and and you know, like, and then as I as I grew up, reading more about these kinds of ships, being kind of like, wow, they were like really amazing ships, like they were really cool, um, you know, naval kind of like innovations. And why don't we talk about them more? So I don't know. So that's a little family story that I just. <laughs> I wanted to share. And um, yeah, so. Yeah, that's such an amazing story that you just told about uh, your grandparents. I mean, like, I can just imagine like the, um, I guess the terror that they must have felt at the time. uh, So palpable. Um, But you're like your book is about Shek Young, but also you have another main character. You have Mazu, the uh, goddess. And, um, you know, like with all myths and legends, stories about her have kind of been reshaped and retold over time. Um, how can you tell us more about her story? How like why did you decide to include her in your book? The the quickest answer to that question is just that um, pirates back then really worshipped her. Like she was a very very active. And I, I shouldn't it's I shouldn't make it seem like pirates specifically worshipped her, because so many of these pirates were actually fishermen who basically got desperate. Um, fishermen worshipped uh, Mazu for the obvious reason that she um, is considered by many to be a sea goddess, right? And so you gotta you gotta pray to sea goddess for good harvests or good um good uh catches for um you know fair weather or whatever um but uh, so so on one hand it was just like okay well if pirates back then worshiped her this is a part of the 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 you know the way that they lived back then and therefore I should try to represent it in in the writing um but i think the other part of it is also because you know like i again growing up in taiwan there masu is I, I, re- I mean, I don't know if I have the statistics for this, but like, I think she is the most popular deity worshipped in Taiwan. Like, you know, like there are obviously many other gods and goddesses that are worshipped, but like she's considered, you know, the most beloved. And so I grew up, you know, like there were like temples, like a bunch of temples in my neighborhood. And I would like just like go into temples and play with the fortune sticks and play with the moon blocks and like, you know, like my family wasn't particularly religious, but like they also weren't, um, they weren't, do you know what I mean? They weren't like, no, you can't do this. Like this is, this is wrong. This is bad. Like they just kind of like, do whatever I wanted. Um, and so, um, so like, I, yeah, I grew up around the, the myths about Mazu and, and, and one of the things I wanted to kind of play with is, you know, 
there's there are many ways in which Sekyung herself has also been mythologized by time. And for folks who aren't familiar with um, the figure Mazu, uh, she might have been an actual person who lived, you know, I, I want to say like 600, 700, like, you know, uh, um, uh, AD or something like that. And, um, and, you know, like over the course of the centuries, she has become this loved and revered goddess. And so I wanted to kind of play with the myths that we tell about women, especially iconic women, and also the ways in which people, including Sekyang, use myths to try to guide their own lives or justify the misdeeds in their own lives, right? Like there's a way in which like myths are, for many people, myths are guides for behavior or like they, they, they provide a certain explanation of the world or a certain meaning of the world that they then use to guide their behaviors. So I, I was trying to play with some of these ideas about um, the mythologizing of women in this book. Yeah, I definitely related to that aspect. Um, there's this, I think, I don't know if it's a, a strictly Chinese thing or not. Like my family is also um, Taiwanese, uh, why should by way of China? Um, and we're similar. Right? We're not religious, but we do have superstitions, right? We do have our favorite patron god. Like for my family, it was Guangong. So we, well, it was because um, my grandmother, I guess, prayed to the Guangong shrine before coming to Taiwan. So he kind of became our family's guardian, like spirit. And there's this interesting um, way that like Chinese, these Chinese gods work because they're, it's also part ancestor worship, which is also like a very Chinese, like um, religious trait because like similar to Mazu, um, Guangdong was also like, he was a historical character that became a fictional hero that became like a deified, like saint slash God. So it's, it's, I love that your book explored like that aspect of Chinese culture as well. Yeah. I mean, totally. Like I, I have an ancestral altar in my home. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like this is what, this is what I grew up with. And, um, and uh so yeah, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to kind of, in many ways, I think this was also this book was also my way of um, celebrating and talking about these things that I grew up with that I don't really hear a lot about here um, in the states. Like whenever I go back and visit family in Taiwan, like the stuff is everywhere. Do you know what I mean? Like 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 every I think it's like Monday or something. Like it, like all the shops have like the little the burner that they put in the front of the store where they burn the paper money and you know like every store and every house has like a, an ancestral altar in it and then i like i come back here to the states and like this is not a thing that gets talked about or or, or thought about a lot here so um in many ways this book is also kind of a it's a love letter from me to to some of these um these practices that i grew up with Speaking of uh, practices, traditions, and superstitions, fortune-telling is a big part of uh, your story. And um, just like the idea of fate and how we, you know, it, like, do we, are we free from our fate? Do we get to uh, have choice in it, in our in our own destiny? Um, but, like, I'm just, this is, a, this is kind of like a random question, uh, but... Like, have you ever got your fortune told? <laughs> like, I, because I feel like every Asian kid has had their fortune told when they were born or, you know, like before they got m married or something. Yeah, no, I absolutely did. And uh, thank you for saying that because, yeah, like, I think some people might not realize that like this is like a really common practice. When I was like really, really young, like maybe right after I was born, maybe like when I was like one or something. You're right. My mother took me to um, a fortune teller who kind of like, like, like she said, okay, I'm, I'm just obviously because I don't have memories of when I was one. But according to my mother, this person said, okay, you, your daughter um, may achieve a little bit of uh, some level of like acclaim or something. But when she is 20, when she is 45, like he gave like her three ages. And I'm like, mom, how, how do you not remember? This is important. But basically he said she might get into bad accidents 
um, during during like these three ages. And of course, my mother has forgotten what ages. I feel I'm like th- I feel like this is vital information for me to know, so I know like what year I'm not supposed to. I don't know, get on a plane or something. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, she took me to a fortune teller when I was very young. Um, and then since then, you know, like, again, whenever I um, am in Taiwan, I uh, go visit the temples and I'll like do the thing where you draw a stick and like you pull the the little <laughs> fortune that comes from the, the drawer um, or you use the moon blocks to um, to get yes or no or maybe so answers. Um, and then I've had like a couple of like tarot, like more Western fortune telling styles like tarot done over the years. But uh, but I, I actually. Sorry. I'm going to show you this. Um, oh, wait, we're not on video, so it doesn't help. But like, I actually ended up buying myself a little canister of these fortune sticks um, because while I was uh, while I was writing the book, I was like, OK, I think having these would like help me help me get in the mindset of what it's like to to um, read these fortunes as well as to um, as well as to uh, be on the rece- receiving end of these fortunes. So anyway. Yeah, it's not a random question at all. I I, I love talk, talking about this topic. Yeah, I, I I feel bad because I feel like when I go to temples, I'm always following my parents, even as like a full grown adult. I'm just following what my parents are doing and just having them lead me around. So like, I don't know if I'll be able to. Um, I should really next time write down what the things that like are the the um like the rituals, right? The rituals are something that. As diaspora, as, at least for myself, I rely on like my parents or someone else to tell me what to do because I don't know innately what those rituals are, you know? No, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And, but, you know, and it's really funny because I remember when I was doing research with this novel, actually, I went to um, one of the Mazu temples and I asked the, the, you know, the sort of the aunties who work there, like, okay, like, give me like the very, like, not what people are doing, but like what you think the official practices, if that makes any sense. And I remember one of the aunties, she was so cute. She was like, so you know how, again, I, this doesn't make sense because we're not on video, but like there's a particular way you're supposed, you go to temples, you see people holding these incense sticks in their hands between their, um, and you, they sort of like bow to the gods with the incense sticks like directly in front of their faces. And like, I remember the auntie pointed to people and she was like, they're all doing it wrong. And she said that you were supposed to actually hold the sticks Kind of like, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. She was like, you're not supposed to just go like this. You're, again, oh my God, none of this is make sense in, in a podcast format. But you're supposed to hold the sticks basically directly, I'm trying to describe it. You're tra- holding them directly over your forehead, um, facing outward, kind of like the prongs of like a tiara or something. And that's how you're supposed to pray with the incense. And so, um, so I mean, yeah, like I, 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 like if I had followed the the way that my, uh, parents do them that do it then it would be wrong according to this auntie because the right way to do it is like this totally different way so anyway yeah yeah i remember i think that's that's the way i was taught by I'm, I'm glad my parents taught me the right way i guess as a korean i have no frame of reference <laughs> i mean like in korea fortune telling is like a big thing especially like now i don't know it just kind of had like had a re like like a new surge now there's cafes where you can like go and there's like a shaman there to like read your fortune it's very interesting um just how like superstition is like weaved into uh our culture even in like modern day um but like moving on i have to say you have an you have a natural affinity for writing action scenes like the uh naval battles and like the um Uh, like the the graphic like violence that you put into your book like it's very cinematic and uh what i've noticed in the past is that authors who have the skill of writing pretty good visceral action scenes they've practiced martial arts like they have like that background like fonda lee and sl huang so i'm curious like have you ever studied any form of martial arts like like where did your um I guess, skill of writing action scenes stem from. Thank you for your kind words. And I definitely cannot be put in the same category as like Fonda Lee, because I think Fonda Lee has like five different black belts. (laughs) But um, I, uh, yeah, no. So I I started taking martial arts classes when I was a young adult. um, And then I continued them all the way into my mid thirties. And then um, 
just a variety of life things happened and I had to stop. I had to stop taking them. But um, I started with uh, Taekwondo and um, and then I moved into uh, Okinawan um, karate. And that's the that's the uh, tradition um, with which I'm most familiar. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I. I also I should mention I grew up reading my grandfather's uh, wuxia novels, so like all of the, like all of these like martial arts novels, and so I I think on I, I I wasn't trying to emulate wuxia novels with this particular novel, but I think the influence almost certainly seeped through because like I love those books so much when I was a kid. Um, this was before my um, ability to read uh, um, Han characters kind of became like. I mean, like I can still read some these days, but like my reading comprehension is far, far, far below where it used to be. Um, but um, yeah, I love those books. And I think I always I, I always knew that if I wrote a novel, that there would be some fight scenes um, in them. So. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's a story about pirates. You kind of have to have action scenes. <laughs> it feels kind of illegal to have a book about pirates without any action season. Yeah. I agree. All right. So your book releases on May 30th, which by the time people listen to this interview, it's already out. So I know you're in the middle of a lot of book promotion right now, but are you working on anything else? Um, I am, um, but I, it's in such an early stage that I kind of don't feel comfortable talking about it. So I'm sorry. No worries. You know, you, you just got your first novel out. Got, got to focus on the first child first before moving on to the next one. Um what are you most excited about for people picking up your book? Um, I think just I like I think that this was a this character second was a definitely not a good person, but I think she was a very complicated person. And um, I think pe- more people should know about um, her and her story. And more importantly, I think people should know that about this really kind of thriving subculture that existed um, in China at the time. You know, like I think in many ways, somebody I talked to recently said that this is in many ways a story, not just about her, but about that entire community. And so I, um, you know, I think that this was a really fascinating community that existed in that area back then. And I I want more people to know about it. And so um, if uh, if folks are kind enough to pick up a copy of my book, I hope that they'll they'll find some interesting stuff in there about these people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rita, for joining us on Books and Boba. It was such a pleasure chatting with you and, you know, wishing you a great um, book launch promotional tour. Um, let us know when you're in L.A. Thank we'll you so much. Time. And really, it was a pleasure talking to the, both of you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. And that was Rita Chang Epic, the author of Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea, available now at booksellers everywhere, uh, including, as always, the Books and Boba Bookshop. Uh, if you are interested in picking up the book, we encourage you to buy from our online bookstore, where the proceeds not only go to benefit your local bookstores, but also us at Books and Boba. I guess this is a good time to also plug our Books and Boba Patreon. Um, if you want to support us more directly and have access to our Books and Boba Discord and our monthly special Boba chats, you can go to patreon.com slash books and boba and, um, and give us your support. Um, it really means a lot to us um, to have Patreon support. And um, big thanks to all of our current Patreon subscribers for, for being part of our community. And I guess before we call an episode, um, Rira, can you remind us what we are reading for the month of June? Yeah, we are reading We Have Always Been Here by Lena Wen. And it's a psychological sci-fi thriller about a scientist who must discover the source of her spaceship cruise madness on an icy planet or risk succumbing to the madness herself. So like we've said in the past, it is very alien. It is very much the thing. And this is a pretty um, like pretty short book, I would say, for a sci-fi novel. Because sci-fi novels are pretty long. <laughs> yeah, love a good sci-fi horror for this gloomy, gloomy June we're having. And looking forward to discussing this book with you all. If you've already finished the book, you can tell us what you thought on Goodreads and our new Discord again for our Patreon subscribers. We always love to hear from our listeners and we love to include your feedback into our book club discussions as well. 
Yeah, I like my opinions being validated. So, <laughs> <laughs> so please share your thoughts in our Goodreads and our Discord. And of course, for the people who are already part of our Discord, I mean, books aren't the only things we talk about. We talk about anime, <laughs> video games. There's a lot of topics because yeah. Marvin and I have a lot of interests. So please feel free to join uh, those diverse conversations that we have on the Discord. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you again to Rita Chang Epic for um, joining us on the podcast. Um, and we'll see y'all later. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.